From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. is really trying to understand how looking at very big objects like galaxies, like clusters of galaxies, can tell us information about very small objects like particles. And also trying to fill in that timeline of how do we go from the beginning where we're in like this particle stew that's called the hot big bang. How do we get from there to galaxies? And structure formation includes us. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. She's also a columnist for New Scientist and Physics World. Her scientific research focuses on particles and cosmology. She also conducts research in black feminist science, technology, and society studies. The winner of the 2021 Edward A. Boucher Award from the American Physical Society, she divides her time between the New Hampshire seacoast and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start our conversation back in 2010. You're walking into a hallowed space for you, the Smithsonian Institution, the Air and Space Museum there in Washington, D.C., and you're there to see an exhibit about telescopes. And as you're walking through the exhibits, you come upon one particular explanation of a couple of pioneers of astronomy. And suddenly you find yourself stopped up short and you want to take issue with what's been written there. And in fact, that leads to an entire conversation that you have with the staff of the Smithsonian itself. If you could tell us a little bit about what you noticed there that needed correction and what happened after that. So I was pretty excited about this exhibit because telescopes are super cool. And I had just defended my dissertation. My PhD wouldn't be awarded for another nine months or so, but I was effectively a PhD at that point. And I had just started, I had just arrived in Washington, D.C. to start a postdoctoral fellowship at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So I was like really excited about data. And um, in this exhibit about telescopes, they had a discussion about William and Carolyn Herschel. Well, really, they had a discussion about William Herschel who was, I believe, an 18th century astronomer. And it listed his sister, Carolyn, as his assistant instead of as an astronomer in her own right. So this is a, the, the story of what happens next is a story that I tell in The Disordered Cosmos, partly because like I was quite taken aback, first of all, by the exhibit. And then actually I was taken aback by... And how people responded to me critiquing it, which is that I never actually had a direct conversation with the Smithsonian staff about it. And I kind of, I, I, on some level, like now, I wish that is how it had unfolded. 
But what ended up happening instead is I sent an email to an email list about women in astronomy that's run by some people in the American Astronomical Society and said, I can't believe this. Has anybody else seen this? This doesn't seem right to me because Carolyn made discoveries of her own after William died. She was recognized with awards. She was an astronomer. She wasn't just an assistant. She may have started as an assistant, but she was an astronomer in her own right. And the way that this got handled at the Smithsonian is that uh, someone wrote a blog for the Smithsonian Magazine referring to me as a local postdoc instead of NASA postdoctoral program fellow, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. It just said a local postdoc, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, and then basically proceeded to justify why she wasn't really an astronomer because she wouldn't have called herself an astronomer. And I was like, I think it's easier for me to articulate this now that it's been over 10 years, but the word physicist didn't even exist when Isaac Newton was alive and nobody has any problems calling Isaac Newton a physicist. So for me, that was like a real, huh? Like I thought that this would be very straightforward. If there's an error here, let's fix it. And then it turned out it was like a point of debate. And I was very shocked by that. Well, and this speaks to some of the questions that are at the heart of your book, The Disordered Cosmos, questions about who gets to call themselves a scientist and what it means to exist in spaces that our society has deemed as scientific in some ways. And as a way of letting my listeners know how you consider yourself, you've described yourself as an astro-slash-physicist that blends both astronomy and physics. So in a couple of sentences, and I realize I'm asking you to distill a lot into a couple sentences, for my listeners, help them understand when you use this term as an astrophysicist or an astro-slash-physicist, how you're understanding the relationship of those two terms. Yeah, I think if I had to choose, I would say I'm a theoretical physicist who works at the interface of astronomy and physics. But people use all sorts of labels to describe me. And so I've just had to accept that on some days to some people, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist and on other days, I'm an astronomer and that just has a lot to do with how people associate different words with different meanings. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. So you talked about a person working at the interface between astronomy and particle physics. And what may surprise some people is when they hear about astronomy, they think about really big things far away. And when they think about particle physics, they're thinking about really small, almost unimaginably small pieces that are existing in all the matter that we can relate to. And you do a very good job in the disordered cosmos of showing how these two things relate. But maybe for the sake of my listeners, when they're thinking about really big things far away like stars and really small things like the matter collider at CERN, how do these two things relate? Yeah, the interesting thing to me is that I think it's not just the general public that sees that distinction. That's also a distinction that scientists often make. I remember being really amused a few years ago when I realized that from the point of view of astronomers and the National Academies of, of Science, that dark matter was considered an interdisciplinary topic. And I think of really of astronomy as a subfield of physics. I realize that as disciplines, physics and astronomy have very different histories. But part of, if we think about, for example, Isaac Newton's contributions to our scientific knowledge is that 
Newton really pointed the way to using physics to understand astronomy. And essentially now in order to do astronomy, you have to understand a lot about physics. And so it's actually easier to get into a PhD program in astronomy with an undergraduate degree in physics than sometimes an undergraduate degree in astronomy because you have all of the background courses and, and, and that sort of thing. So the idea that they're separate, I think, is like a very social thing. I think that's the first thing that I will say. But the other thing is, from my point of view, it's a question of different parts of the timeline, the cosmological timeline. When we're talking about particle physics, we're talking about the stuff that is at the very foundation of what comprises everything else. So if you take a human being, for the most part, we can be broken down into quarks and electrons. <laughs> I am, even though, you know, relative to a quark, we are massive objects, like we are very big. And, and the work that I do is really trying to understand how looking at very big objects like galaxies, like clusters of galaxies can tell us information about very small objects like particles. And also trying to fill in that timeline of how do we go from the beginning where we're in like this particle stew that's called the hot big bang how do we get from there to galaxies? And structure formation includes us. And listeners who are following along and may have just glazed over with their eyes a little bit, I want to reassure you that in the book, The Disordered Cosmos, these concepts that, you're, that you've just used get explained, and they get explained pretty clearly. But there's a wonderful move that you make in The Disordered Cosmos as well. And you just talked about quarks and leptons, and you, you talk about all these different particles. But you also talk about when you were young, and you had just been introduced to these. You got a book by Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time. And there's this moment in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, where you're talking about being on the bus, and you say, I was telling people about quarks even before I understood what they meant. And I found that to be very reassuring because I think listeners may say, I don't know what a quark is. And part of what you're giving us right now is just get excited about the word, get excited about some of the ideas and the fact that, that we have the knowledge to really penetrate to the depths of the structures of the universe in this way and come along with you on this journey and you'll help to fill them in. Now, as I'm saying this, these are all my words, not yours. So you may say it in a different way, but I'd be interested about that moment when you were expounding about something even before you understood or really even grasped what it was. Tell me about that. I think learning science is definitely a layered experience, right? So some of it is about learning a language. And so at that point, I was learning a language. I didn't necessarily know what all the words meant. And I think like maybe the analogy that I will use here as a, a practicing Jew is that I can read Hebrew I don't know what most of the words mean. And that's like, I think pretty common for American Jews is to be able to sit there and read Torah and then have to look at the English to be like, yeah, I just said all the words out loud in Hebrew. I have no idea what I said. What is the, the, the translation in, in English right there? And, and the connecting the journey of getting a degree in physics is actually starting to fill in what do those words mean and developing an intuition for it. I think that when confronted with like even articles about science, that we are so socialized to associate science with classes and with testing, that it's difficult for people to actually sit down and just read a popular science article and even like Scientific American and not feel like they're going to be tested on the other end and that they need to be able to answer like complicated questions. So I found a lot of people saying to me, like, oh, man, I'm not sure I understood anything about like the I Heart Quarks chapter, which is the first chapter in the book. 
But then they're using these words and they're explaining to me, like you just said leptons. And I'm like, yeah, he has some sense of what a lepton is. So what that word is, you used it correctly in a sentence. Do you have a PhD in physics? No, but if I could teach someone enough for them to be like PhD equivalent in 150 pages, then I wasted a lot of time in graduate school. So in one sense, that's a very hopeful response. But there's another piece of this that I heard in your response just now, but that also comes out in in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, and that is that at the same time that this is a specialist language, it's also what we might call a power language. And that alongside the invitation to come and learn more, there's also sometimes overt and sometimes covert messages that says, but you don't particularly belong in this conversation. You don't particularly belong in these kinds of moments. And so I want listeners also to realize that you're not just talking about the the kind of joy of being exposed to new ideas, but that there, there's also very real gatekeeping involved here. And as we're, we'll get into this more in, in other parts of the conversation, but as we're moving towards our first break, just talk to me a little bit about that tension between a language that you take time in a PhD to learn and the kind of gatekeeping that goes along with that language. I think it's important for people to understand the vocabulary that we use to describe science is not handed down to us using tablets on a mount. I know that this is going to air later, but it's Shabuot for, for those of us who are Jewish. And so this is like a particularly like apt analogy right now, I think. The vocabulary that we are using evolves as scientists are working out ideas and using mathematical techniques and then assigning those uh, mathematical outcomes a vocabulary. And that happens in a, a social context. And it matters that for a long time, professional physics was populated almost exclusively by white men from a particular social class. And so some of the vocabulary reflects that. And I'll just come back to dark matter for a second because I I know maybe people's eyes glazed over because I didn't really explain what that is. But most of the matter in the universe is made up of some invisible type of matter we call dark matter. Okay, why is it called dark matter if it's invisible? Well, that's a really good question. And it's a social question because the word dark had a particular meaning at a particular time. Um, to Fritz Vicky and the Europeans who brought that into the vocabulary. Was it a racialized term? I don't know, because I think that's the question that comes up for people. The word dark has a different social discourse now than it did in 1935. So it's all very social. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and a core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. In the first segment, we were talking a little bit about some of the influences like coming across a book by Stephen Hawking that helped to push you in the direction of science. But you also talk in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, about a kind of pivotal conversation you had with a scientist by the name of Vera Rubin. And I would love, first of all, for you to tell my listeners a little bit about who Vera Rubin is and why was that conversation so important to you? So we had just left off talking about dark matter and the idea of this invisible matter filling the universe. So it was first hypothesized in the the 1930s by Fritz Vicky, but it wasn't until the late 60s and early 70s when Vera Rubin, an astronomer, decided to use a new instrument developed by another astronomer, Kent Ford, to look at how fast stars were rotating around galactic centers that we finally had evidence for the existence of of this dark matter. And so in many ways, Vera Rubin is responsible for our understanding of 80% of the matter content of the universe right now. And I should say, by the way, since I'm talking about dark matter, that we still have no idea what comprises dark matter. So it's like this big mystery. I'm talking about it a lot because it's what I spend most of my research time on. When I was a graduate student, when I was finishing up, so the year before the Smithsonian incident, just to place people in in the timeline, I went to a women in astronomy conference and I met Vera. And this was before I was working on dark matter and I was introduced to her. I don't remember how. And she just turned to me and said, so how do we solve the dark matter problem? And I was like, oh my God, Vera Rubin just asked me how to solve the problem that she's responsible for creating. And I remember being totally embarrassed because I didn't have a good answer for her. But also, graduate students in science, I think, are rarely asked our opinions about big questions. And that was the first time that someone, especially like a VIP, was like, hey, your thoughts about this are important, and I'm interested, and I'm curious about what you think. And I think that planted the seed for me that, hey, it's okay to go after this big problem, and this big problem is interesting. Now, I recognize that you probably have never had the chance to circle back with Dr. Rubin and to ask what the motivation was for prompting you with that question at that time. But if you were to imagine, why do you think she asked you that question? Yeah, I did have the opportunity to communicate with her by email a couple more times. And then she passed away a a couple of Christmases ago, actually. And it it never occurred to me to actually say, like, why were you even speaking to me? (laughs) Even though there are a couple of biographies, there's a biography of Vera Rubin that just came out, and I know that there's another one that is in the pipeline. And I've had the opportunity to look at both of them. And definitely what comes out is that was just her personality. She, I think, also had a really keen sense of how hierarchies and ideas about whose minds were important and doing meaningful things had been a barrier for her. And it was just like part of her scientific practice that she wasn't interested in that kind of thing. So instead of looking at me and saying, oh, this is a graduate student and she doesn't look like 
the, the type of graduate students that I'm used to seeing that she probably doesn't have anything interesting to say. She was just like, this is a graduate student. She thinks about science. Let me ask her a scientific question. And I think that was a really key lesson, which is like sometimes the best thing that we can do is really just take someone seriously as a scientist. Well, and this brings up a passage from your book, The Disordered Cosmos, I wanted to ask you about. Later in the book, you write, despite everything, I've been able to make technical contributions to the field. In fact, my work has recently been recognized by the American Physical Society with a 2021 Edward A. Boucher Award. And then you go on to say, I believe that signals that I could contribute even more if given a more equitable chance. My black, indigenous, and brown Latinx colleagues and students and the future aspiring astrophysicists that I haven't met or who haven't been born yet could do really wonderful things if given a more equitable chance. Now, when I reflect this passage that you wrote back to you in light of our conversation about Vera Rubin, it sounds to me like what you're saying about Dr. Rubin's personality was that she was committed to trying to create opportunities for those more equitable chances. Now, when I make that kind of connection, am I connecting it properly, or would you say it in a different way? Definitely something that comes through in the biography is that this was a, a lifelong practice of hers. I think what's striking about the story of the interaction between me and her is that it wasn't some kind of complicated heavy lift, like no grant needed to be gotten. She didn't have to run a program. You know, all she did was ask me a question and she asked me a scientific question and she treated me like I had a brain <laughs> and that I might be doing interesting things with it. And so it's, it can sometimes be really straightforward. That said, there is a larger context, which was the reason that we crossed paths at all was because this Women in Astronomy conference was happening. And I, I very specifically actually want to name Dara Norman, who's a, a Black woman astronomer, who went out of her way to make sure that I knew about the conference and that I had funding to attend the conference. And so even though that moment, you know, was just like Vera making a decision, there was also a larger context of a lot of moving parts and people making sure that I had opportunities to be in that space with her. And I want to make sure that my listeners grasp the context of what you just said. So you're talking about a conference specifically for women in astronomy. An another African-American black woman astronomer made sure that you knew that you were there. When we're talking about women in astronomy, and when we're particularly talking about women in astronomy who identify as persons of color, what sort of set of persons are we talking about here? How big is that set of persons? I can't give you statistics for women of color in astronomy overall, but if we're talking about Black American women who have earned PhDs from departments of astronomy or specifically in the field of astronomy. And I don't count in that number because my PhD was in physics. There are about 25, maybe. And it's a very small number relative to how many PhDs in astronomy are granted every year. So it's a very small select number of people. And this underscores what you've been saying throughout the conversation, but also throughout your book, The Disordered Cosmos, that for a number of centuries, this has tended to be a white, male-identifying, cis-identifying, straight-identifying set of subject matters. That when we think about science, the mental image, particularly for Americans, tends to default to white and male. And there's a lot of loss that happens as a result of that, because there's not just a loss of the kind of base scientific knowledge, but it also sounds like a loss of imagination. 
And I, I want to ask you more questions about that. But before I get into those other questions, I want to ask, first of all, just generally about what it means to have that kind of loss of imagination. I think, first of all, thanks to like media events like Hidden Figures, I do think that the public imagination is changing, but I'll actually use an example that like just happened over the weekend, which is that last night, 60 Minutes did a whole segment, I think with produced and reported by Anderson Cooper about bias in artificial intelligence and in, in technologies and didn't include an interview with even one Black woman, even though Black women have been leading the way in the discussion about bias in visual technologies. Even though the public's impression is changing, there are lots of structural barriers, which was like, you read the tweets about what happened. And these Black women were actually contacted by 60 Minutes and said, okay, we're going to interview you. And um, one person, uh, Joy Bolo. Boyalami, I'm definitely butchering her last name. I apologize, Joy. She's a graduate student at the MIT Media Lab and also just a world-renowned expert on, on this, even though she's still, quote, just a graduate student. I um, was on her way to get her COVID test in order to do the filming, and they canceled the interview with her. The media is still making decisions for us about who we see as experts, who we get the opportunity to recognize as a scientist. Anybody who watched that 60 minute segment might have walked away thinking, oh, that's something that like white men are leading the way on. That's a really good example. I think it's easy to say, well, and the real loss here is to science. But, you know, what I'm thinking about is the loss of dignity to the women who were denied the opportunity to engage the public about the scientific work they've been doing. And that when we are denied the opportunity to share our science with the public, to share our science with each other, with the scientific community, that that's a loss of dignity and it's dehumanizing. And so I think that this is really about our collective soul as a community. Uh, are there people who are not allowed to be fully human? And if being a scientist is part of your humanity, then you're being denied part of your humanity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is a cosmologist and a particle physicist. We're talking about her book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Well, you mentioned a moment ago the places where artificial intelligence can really be encoding kind of racist expectations into its basic functionality. You mentioned in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, something that happened with a Nigerian employee of Facebook, Chokwameka Afigbo, who was going and putting his hand underneath a soap dispenser, and he was dark-skinned, and he actually ended up making a little movie of this. His colleague, who was light-skinned, the dispenser recognized the hand and dispensed the soap, but when he put his hand underneath, it wasn't able to dispense the soap. And you couch this story in the midst of, of an extended reflection on the chemistry and the physics of melanin, the thing that gives our human bodies their color. And to me, that was a fascinating part of the, the book, The Disordered Cosmos, because it began to take what you do in your research, the kind of depth of the way that particles interact with things like electricity and energy, and you began to make it part of your own personal story. So if you could, with that kind of reflection on the deeply personal and the physical around something like melanin, tell us how we can begin to re-understand or understand differently this thing that is part of all of our bodies, but we never see or we see in ways that, uh, that causes us to make parts of it invisible. 
Yeah, let's just, just go back to that soap dispenser example. And, you know, returning to your previous question about what is lost to science, like in a very practical sense, like the technology doesn't work because the only people who had worked at that soap dispenser company were clearly at a certain shade or, or later. And I, I, I just want to articulate this, even in terms of like my presence in physics, that in many ways, I'm a barrier breaking black woman in physics, but I'm also a light skinned black woman. And so even in, had I been working on that project, for example, I wouldn't have necessarily been like, okay, we tested on a black person because like black people come in a lot of shades. We have a real problem with colorism in our society, which is a tool that serves like white supremacist racism. And people like me are experience less racism because colorism is, is at work there. And so I just want to articulate that when people are talking about like, you know, these questions of, I'm putting this in air quotes, diversity and inclusion. It's not enough to be like, okay, that person says they're black on paper, but it's also important to start thinking about how does appearance shape who's in the room and who feels welcome in the room. And then to connect this back to this question about like melanin and the physics of melanin, it's like super interesting to me that people come in all of these different shades, but there isn't like really an active discussion of the ways in which physics is literally written on the body for people. And you would think that if we were trying to hit home, that physics is part of your everyday life, that we could start by talking about like, how is physics part of your everyday, like literally part of your body? Like, how do we use physics to interpret how our body is interacting with its environment? And so that was, that's really the underlying question behind the physics of melanin. I will say that's the chapter that I struggled with the most. Ironically, it had already been published in a magazine, an earlier version of it. And so I thought it was going to be the easiest chapter in the book, but I found it was the one that I was still editing until they basically took the book away from me. And it was because on the one hand, I wanted to talk about the molecule, the biomolecule melanin, and how it's like this really fascinating material. But I also had to grapple with the history of racism and the idea of race and what all of these things meant and what it meant to think about these things at the same time. One of the things that fascinates me about these connections that you're making is your area of specialization is particle physics. And one of the things that you note in passing in the disordered cosmos is that when particle physics was first introduced as a subdiscipline within physics, it was touted as the politics-free kind of physics. It was the science without politics. What I would love to spend a moment or two thinking about with you is this tension between the rhetoric of a politics-free space of science and what you've done continually in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, and as I've invited you to do in this conversation, to bring the politics and the, the embodiment back into the science. So talk to me about that tension. Yeah, I'll start by giving people a reference for people who have questions about the claims. And I'm pretty sure I cite this book also in The Disordered Cosmos. Audra Wolf's Freedom's Laboratory was for me like a really eye-opening. It just came out a couple of years ago on Johns Hopkins University Press. It's this really eye-opening book that's basically about how the idea that science was value-free and was like politics neutral was actually basically CIA Cold War propaganda which is that's really not what you think when you know you, you hear those sorts of things. And that's because it's, it's been so normalized for us. They actively made sure it was taught in classrooms. It's the idea that I grew up with. And it was one that I, I had to grow out of. 
just going back to these questions about what language that we use, that the language we use is shaped by social phenomena, by the politics of the moment, that the question of whose bodies do we even take an interest in as human bodies is shaped by the, the politics of the moment. I think the example I like to give people, and I don't think I use this one in the book, is that for a long time, we misunderstood the behavior of sperm and eggs because people were projecting genders onto the sperm and the egg. So they were like, the sperm's very aggressive and the egg just sits there and waits for the sperm to attack it. And that actually turned out not to be how things worked, but we were literally getting the wrong story because people were choosing a set of filters where they came to certain conclusions based on the assumptions that they were making. And that's like incredibly political because that was about how patriarchy was shaping our conversation about reproduction. And when we talk about things like patriarchy, when we talk about things like sexism, when we talk about things like racism and colorism, I, I think some listeners will say, well, that's something that's imposed upon these more basic questions about science. I want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, that you're saying, no, it's always been there. All of these aspects have always been there. The erasure of certain individuals and identities within the pursuit of science has always been there. We're just better now at telling the stories. Now, I, I want to make sure, have I said it right, or would you say it in a different way? I think the, the thing that people are reaching for is what's universal here and what's contextual. So I, I would say that seems to be universal is that every community globally has a story about the sky, has looked at the stars and found patterns, and has also looked at the environment around them and used rational knowledge to understand patterns, to understand the environment, to predict when rain is coming. All of these things that we might call like ecology now or astronomy now. So I think that, and, and I, I think of it in terms of storytelling. I think we're a storytelling species. This is something that a Black woman philosopher, Sylvia Winter, has, has articulated that we're not only a biological species, we're as a storytelling species. And so I think that's where the universal component is. But the nature of the story is, of course, going to be socially inflected. If, you know, your society holds the value that men are superior to women, then that is going to make its way into science because science is a human activity. So you can't take the humans out of the science, even though maybe that's the story we tell ourselves, that science is fundamentally the process through which you detach your humanity as much as possible. And maybe there's some ideal there. When you're in a position of power, your definition of what counts as detachment and what counts as objectivity is going to be shaped by the way that you relate to power. And if it's in the best interest of you maintaining power to say something is true, then you're probably going to say that's true, even if it's not actually a good conclusion to come to. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There, you'll be able to find 
close to 10 years of these sorts of discussions and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. At the close of our last segment, you said something that I want to come back to. You said every culture has a story about the sky. And that comes up in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, particularly when we go to the state of Hawaii and indigenous persons that are there in Hawaii. You, In your chapter called The Point of Science, Lessons from the Mauna, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, I would love to hear a little bit about what is the conflict that is going on around sacred space in Hawaii? How does it relate to science and what we're talking about? So many people may have heard of Mauna Kea, which is a, a, a volcano slash mountain in Hawaii. It's got one of the best views of the sky on the planet, partly because it's very high altitude. And that means you get above a couple of layers of, of some of the atmosphere and some of the noise that can get in the way. I, in terms of, of looking at the sky, before Hawaii was colonized, it was considered to be sacred land by Kanaka Maoli, a traditional native Hawaiian cultural knowledge holders still understand it to be um, sacred land. And right now, there are 13 astronomy observatories there, and they are there largely with the permission of the U.S. government and what many would consider to be the colonial government of the state of Hawaii. And so there are plans to build another telescope, a 14th observatory there called the 30-meter telescope. It would be along with the giant Magellan telescope that is currently under construction in the Atacama Desert in Chile in the Southern Hemisphere. So different sky, this is important. And um, the two of them would be the largest telescopes ever built. And the images that we would expect to get from such an instrument are really incredible. Of course, as I was just saying, the observatories are there largely with the permission of the colonial governments and not I'm through any kind of consensus or real permission process from Kanaka Meoli people. And so there has been a tension around that, and there have been protests and people demanding that the telescope building stop. There is a diversity of opinions among Native Hawaiians about how this should be approached. And I ended up basically getting involved in it as someone who is firmly anti colonial, saying that as scientists, if we want to engage in a project that creates division in an indigenous community, then we should not be engaging in that project. Well, and so the Kanaka Maoli people, and you say this so beautifully in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, you say that again and again through history, we find people who have already discovered something. They already have knowledge or technology. And the kind of colonial European project comes in and co-ops it and takes it over. And that in in you say it wasn't the it wasn't the colonial government of the United States that discovered that great views were available at the top of this mountain. The great views were already known to the people, but the people who have treasured these views and knew how to cherish these views have never been consulted on the proper way to approach and to use these kinds of spaces. Now, as I say this, I'm using my own words, not yours. Would you say it in a different way, or would you uh, would you say more about what what I've just said? 
I can definitely think of astronomers who would be screaming right now that Native Hawaiians were consulted. I disagree with them about the extent of the consultation and the propriety of the consultation. It is certainly the case that, you know, how did the Mauna end up becoming sacred land? Certainly part of it must be that people had, Kanaka Maoli people had the same experience of awe when looking at the sky from that location, that um, colonial or even pre-colonial visitors coming to Hawaii for the first time had when they were taken up to the Mauna and people were like, hey, check out this view that we have up here. And I think it's important to say that it's actually Mauna Awakea. And so Wakea is uh, the, the sky father in uh, Kanaka Meoli cosmology. And so this is literally like where um, the father, the sky meets the land, which in um, the Kanaka Meoli understanding of the land is that it's a family member. And I would I say this loosely because I think, you know, imp imposing English terms on and on a cosmology that doesn't come out of English is, is a fraught process. But I would say this is a Kanaka ecology, that they understand that the land is part of a family member. And one of the points that I make in the book is if people had understood, like if industrialists had understood that the land was part of the family in the 19th century and into the 20th century, would we be in this colonial, in this global warming mass? Because people would have said, oh, we need to take care of the ecosystem because our livelihood depends on this family member being cared for. So I, I, I definitely think that there's a story to be told there about both taking from indigenous knowledge and then also ignoring indigenous knowledge when it's inconvenient even though there was something to be gained in, in both directions there and ultimately disrespecting indigenous knowledge. And then people claiming that like Kanaka people were consulted. I, I think it's important to see this in some ways as like a hostage situation, which is like when people are saying, well, I want the telescope to be built here because it's gonna bring jobs and we're desperate economically. Why is Hawaii at desperate economically? That has to be part of the conversation that we have. Because then it becomes, oh, if you don't let us have our telescope, we're going to let you starve. Which, like, I don't know about other people, but when I think about, like, the wonders of doing astronomy, it's not like threatening people with starvation. This is one of the things that comes up again and again in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, in a really beautiful way, and that is the interrelationality of these kinds of situations. You reference at several points the work of Karen Barad, who's a, a physicist, but also a philosopher, who talks about not just interaction, but intraaction. But you also talk about Einstein's equations, and you talk about the fact that on one side of the equation, mass is telling space how to curve, and on the other side of the equation, space is telling mass how to move. And that interactivity is fluid. And when you try and think of one thing being static, and this gets back to Karen Barad's thought as well, when you think of things as static and having some kind of essential identity, you are saying again and again, no, the identities that we find when we look at these large cosmological events or the tiniest of particles is that they're fluid, they're flexible, they're constantly interacting with our own interaction with them and with each other. And it's it seems as if the narrative of science as just going out and looking at the world is much more complex than probably a lot of my listeners would have ever imagined. Is that a fair characterization? 
Yes, I think there's a, a tricky thing that comes up in there, which is on some level, we're talking about relationality, right? Which is how our perspectives are shaped by our location, how what we see is shaped by our location, and how our presence shapes the reality that's around us. And I will, I guess I probably shouldn't speak for Karen because they can definitely speak for themselves, but I will be really clear and say that I'm a realist. I actually think that the world exists outside of me. I don't think that like it, it I don't think that I'm constructing reality as I go along. I'm inside my mind or anything like that. I think the world exists whether I'm in it or not. But there is definitely a, a clear point that things are linked in the universe. And that comes out in Einstein's relativity, which by the way, I just want to point out, I put the equation in the book and you understood it. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> and, and I'll just come back and say for all the, the critique that I've been making of science here, that fundamentally, I think science is for everyone. And I think science is really exciting. And so I wanted people to have the experience you know, the first third, if you actually look at the pagination, the first third of the book is me just talking about science that I find really interesting and like scientific questions that, that I have stumbled across. And I wanted people to read that partly because I'm really excited about that stuff, but also because I think it's hard for people to appreciate that the critique is coming from a place of love, right? that this is not about being anti-science. It's not about saying that we construct reality, the laws of physics are dependent on who the, the knower is, that Black people will come up with different physics. I mean, like the law of gravity is different for Black people than it is for white people or something like that. And I will say on this media tour that I've been doing for the book, I've actually had people try and get me like, I think people came in expecting me to kind of say something like that. And I'm like, that's not my attitude about it at all. What we're really talking about is understanding that the universe is complex and that the impact we have on the world around us is real. And that's part of the reality around us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Well, you say at one point, and you just talked about the first part of the book being about just a, a kind of dump about how much you enjoy all this stuff, just really loving this stuff and almost a love letter to the kind of science that has captured your imagination. But then there's a point in the book where you say these other issues that we've been talking about off and on throughout the conversation rarely lets you enjoy that science. And so I would love to invite you to share with my listeners some of the things that really excite you about the work that you're doing. Like, what are you studying? What are you learning about and researching that is setting your mind on fire right now? Yeah, so actually, I was just tweeting this morning about a new scientific paper that was made public for the first time. I'm a, a co-author on it. I'm not the lead author. I'm, in many ways, I'm the baby on this paper. It's a new paper about observations of a neutron star. It is thus far potentially the most massive neutron star that we've ever observed. And just to give people context for what is a neutron star, so think about taking the mass of the sun and then compacting it all into Los Angeles, <laughs> right? And the earth is like a dot next to the sun, just to give people a sense of scale. But taking all of this material in the sun and compacting it into Los Angeles, Neutron stars are really exciting because one, they're like the ghosts of stars. 
So they're formed during supernovae and explosions at the end of the life of stars that are more massive than the sun. And they're basically like a, a nuclear particle soup. So they're really cool laboratories for particle physics, which is how I became interested in them. They may capture dark matter, they might produce dark matter. So there is a dark matter connection. I really love neutron stars. I have this running joke with my friend, Joey Nielsen. We were postdocs together at MIT and he's now on the faculty at Villanova University and he's a black hole expert. And we sort of like um, tease each other about black holes versus neutron stars all the time on, on Twitter, which like that, that passes as like fun for physicists. <laughs> um, but I, I'm pretty excited. This paper uses a, a new approach to checking the mass of the star and checking the radius of the star. So really getting a sense of what is the, the physical, like what is the extent of the star? How much would it weigh if we put it on Earth? You don't want it on Earth. It would just make a hole and be very bad. Um, <laughs> and also trying to understand the hot spots on the neutron star. So the neutron star is not completely symmetric. And often these stars are rotating. So the, the one that we that our paper is about is actually a pulsar. So pulsars are like lighthouses. They're rotating. And if one is at the right angle relative to our telescope, we actually see a beam. And so it's literally pulsing like a lighthouse. And they're incredibly, they're interesting clocks. There are a lot of different ways to think about pulsars. But I just think neutron stars are super fun and I'm excited to keep working on them. And so it was exciting to have my first paper on neutron stars finally come out. And I feel like I'm a graduate student again, because I'm really learning with um, Dr. Anna Watts, who is one of the lead authors of the paper. She's faculty at University of Amsterdam, along with um, Tom Riley, who I believe is a postdoc in her, her research group. Yeah. I'm really excited about neutron stars right now. <laughs> well, I just want to put in a plug for your book, The Disordered Cosmos. A reader who has just heard you talk about neutron stars, when you talk about the different particles and their relationships and what they can and can't do, you explain in part why a neutron star stops at that particular point of compression, doesn't go all the way into becoming a black hole. It has everything to do not necessarily with huge things like stars, which, as you've said, are unimaginably big compared to the Earth, but they have everything to do with the kind of interactions of the tiniest kind of particles that you've been studying. And what I loved was learning about that interrelationship between that huge, massive thing and why a neutron star doesn't become a black hole. To me, that's one of the beauties of your book, The Disordered Cosmos, is it's so clear, you know, how the very little affects the very big. Now, I'm a novice at this. Have I got part of it right? Or am yes. I, do I need to change something in what I'm saying? No, I think that's fantastic. And I, I will definitely thank the students that I had in Physics 7, 10, 8, 10, and Fall of 2019, which was um, Astrophysics 1, but it was basically Intro to Stellar Astrophysics for helping me think through, like, how do I want to communicate these ideas? Because basically the class is, if we take like a little bit of thermodynamics, a little bit of quantum mechanics, a little bit of like Newtonian classical mechanics and mix them together, you get a star and you can explain where hydrogen all the way through iron comes from, which is uh, hydrogen starts in the early universe and stars are mostly hydrogen. And then pretty much every element through iron is produced in stars. And anything heavier than that is usually produced in a supernova explosion. And there's actually still, um, like we're still debating where gold came from. 
we think it was produced in what are called kilonova, so like neutron stars orbiting each other and colliding. But it takes a lot of energy to make gold. And so there is this from the very small, just thinking about basic quantum mechanical properties of particles to these very large object stars. And then again, back to these very small, the atomic elements that we're actually like, you know, if, if you have a gold wedding ring or earrings or something, that stuff that was made in a giant explosion, probably when two neutron stars collided with each other, which is like amazing. And what I love about that also is that when you talk about gold, both here in this conversation, but also in your book, The Disordered Cosmos, there's a bit of mystery. We understand where iron comes from. We understand where nitrogen comes from. Gold, we still don't quite understand. And what I love about this is that all through this, there's mystery at the heart of these kind of questions and answers that you're bringing to the reader. It's just glorious. The It is clear how much you love this stuff. It is clear. Also, yeah, It's also clear that this has been a source of frustration for you at certain points, but the love rings out. And I, w I was just, I was so blessed by the love because I, I learned the stuff that I've been talking about here. I learned in part because you were just so excited to tell me about it. I appreciate you saying that. And definitely, I think that the love in some ways is a double-edged sword in the sense that I think without it, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you because I would have walked away a long time ago. I think you have to have an unreasonable level of resilience and persistence and stubbornness and love for the subject, particularly if you're a minority in any way. But actually, I think that the way academia is now, it can be hard for even white guy that quote the scientific community was was built for, particularly people who are nice and and don't like to be mean to people. I don't think science selects very well for that. But it is it is also something that has sustained me. And in my student evaluations, I guess I'm tooting my own horn a little bit, but the students said that I was really enthusiastic about the stellar astrophysics material. And the cool thing is that at that point, yes, I work on neutron stars. I don't actually work on regular, quote, stellar astrophysics, but it's still actually like one of my favorite topics to talk about. And just coming back to the question of mysteries and textbooks and how people feel when they're reading science. Science is about what we don't know. It's not about what we know. It's not about memorization. It's about working at the boundary of what humanity knows about how the universe works and trying to push that boundary forward. And that means spending a lot of time feeling confused. So if at some point you read something scientific and you feel confused, you're having a very scientist experience. Well, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, I loved your book, The Disordered Cosmos. I don't know enough about this, and I learned a ton from it. But also, I want to say it's a challenging book because it challenged me to think about things that I never look at, things that I take for granted, things that I just have accepted as par for the course in the stories I've been told about how our world got here. And I mean that both physically, but also socially. I think it's a very important book for my listeners to, to dive into and to give time to, because it's worth taking a lot of time, both with the answers that you give, but also the questions that you raise. I'm very appreciative that you took the time to write it. I'm especially appreciative that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred.
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.